you love Jesus, let me hear your hand this morning. A couple of announcements that I do need to make you aware of. Um, our connect groups are ready to start their next semester and next session, and we do need leaders in order to have connect groups. How many don't have connect groups? You have to have leaders. All right, so this is your Sunday to sign up. You can go to brianhub.com and sign up. There's a 411 tab. You can get there, go there and get all the information that you need. And if you don't want to volunteer, if you don't want to volunteer to serve, feel free to volunteer somebody else. We'll take it anyway. That was a joke. That some of you said, "Wow, what an easy way out." No, we want you to volunteer and be a part. Thank you for praying for us last week. We were at New Life Center and had a great time there interacting, and I believe God's got great things ahead. And you know the greatest victories come after climbing the biggest mountains. And this is a big mountain we're trying to climb, so pray that God will help us and uh, give us direction to go through that. And then personally, I'm going to ask for your prayers this week. I'll be doing a funeral on Wednesday for one of my best friends on the planet, and uh, he went home to be with Jesus, and... um, if you've never performed a funeral, there's a heavy load on that because you're the last public presentation of that person's life, and I want to do justice to that. And then just got a text a few minutes ago, a family member on my wife's side of the family that just passed away this morning, and uh, I'll be doing that funeral in Cedar Rapids, so one in Waterloo and one in Cedar Rapids. So if the rest of you would just stay alive, that would be great. <laughs> so, but pray for me. Um, those are wonderful opportunities of ministry. Um, pray for me. So now I have to kind of get my mind back in gear. Are we doing something this morning? Am I speaking? Is that what's happening here? We're actually launching a brand new series this morning titled The Problem of Evil. Have you ever wondered why good things happen to bad people? Well, I guess we're done. <laughs> Let me try this again. Um, have you ever wondered why good things happen to bad people? Do you know what I wonder more than that? I want to know why bad people happen to good people, not just bad things. Why does that happen? And there's this issue of evil in the world that we have to grapple with. I am, uh, as I've said, doing research on this whole concept of exvangelicalism and deconversion. There's a movement out there of people who are deconverting. Isn't that interesting to think about? They're acknowledging a conversion by the definition of the term, and wanting to undo that conversion experience. What would cause someone to do that? What would cause someone to say, I was once an evangelical and now I am an ex-evangelical and want to wear that tag? Not just I'm no longer a believer, but I'm an ex-evangelical. What would cause that to happen? And I think we've got to grapple with the reality of evil in the world that we live in. And I think it's time to put away our Bible platitudes that are intended to insulate us from the reality of the suffering that goes on in our world, both in the church and outside the church. And as long as we refuse to be authentic about what's really happening, we will continue to watch people walk away from the faith. We need to grapple with it in an honest, biblical way. We live in a broken world marked by evil, suffering, and pain. And the most common question that people ask is, why does God allow evil? Or if God is so powerful, why doesn't he stop evil things from happening? And I want us to grapple with those over the next four weeks. Horrible things are happening in our world. 
Hello. Right? Horrible things are happening in our world. And I want to give you an example of how broken I think our world is. I'm just, sometimes I'm amazed at how broken we are as a culture in the United States. How many of you have seen the movie Sound of Freedom? Let me see your hands. Have you seen that? I've not seen it yet. I've heard it's a powerful, powerful movie about human trafficking and particularly about children who are being trafficked. And what, a, what an amazing um, way of bringing light to that issue. But here's what I find startling. The number of people that are attacking the movie because of what it addresses. I don't know how you think, but I think if you're going to attack sound of freedom because of the issues it raises, makes me wonder where you're coming from. I get it if you want to talk about its cinematic value, if you want to talk about other things of that sort, but there are thousands of people who have joined together to help fund the film, and they focused attention recently on one of the funders named Fabian Marta, who on February, or I'm sorry, on July 23rd, was charged with felony charges of kidnapping. Digging a bit deeper, I found out this week that the charges claim he was an accessory to domestic kidnapping. Now, that's not the same as child trafficking, but they have dug, dug through thousands of fund, funders to find one that they can attack and discredit the film. Get, come on, let's, let's be honest about this. It is a tragedy in our world. It is a gross evil. And even the detractors should be on board with trying to stop it. This is not a liberal, conservative issue. This is not an issue of Democrat versus Republican. This is an issue of a vile kind of ungodly slavery that we're turning our hearts and minds away from. And God save us from our stupidity. That's how broken our world is. Rather than stopping the darkness, we want to fight over the conservatives who are behind the movie. Another quote said this about the sound of freedom. Quote, the list of right-wing Republican sexual predators grows day by day. Without any documentation to back that up, without any facts to support their slander, this isn't about child trafficking. It's about a hatred for the church. And we need to recognize that and understand that evil is a very real thing in our world. Is anyone hearing me this morning? C.S. Lewis addresses the problem with evil and pain this way. He's not saying this is true. He said this is how people process it. They process it this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks goodness or power or both. It's a pretty pervasive mindset in our world today. The problem of evil is both a universal and existential problem that has to be addressed from a platform of faith. And I want to take us to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 because Solomon sees this issue clearly. And it's part of his faith disillusionment. You understand that Ecclesiastics, 
Ecclesiastes is written by the teacher or the preacher. Solomon, who's trying to find out the meaning of life, and he gives himself to all kinds of sensual pleasures, withholds his hand back from nothing, and goes on a journey to try to understand what brings satisfaction, what is it that brings this sense of wholeness and health in a world that in his day was equally filled with ungodliness. Now listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. Solomon says, Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So in 12 and 13, he expresses what is a biblically supported view of good and evil. Let me read it again. Although a wicked man commit a hundred crimes and lives a long life, I know it will go better in the end for God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. But then one verse later, after expressing what we would see as a solid faith conviction, he says, but there is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. In chapter eight, Solomon, I think, um, clearly articulates the tension that we experience between what we believe, what we build our life on, and what we see as inconsistencies and incongruities in the world. I know it will not be better for the wicked man, he says. It will be better for the righteous man. But then I look at this world and it's meaningless to me because the wicked get what the righteous should get and the righteous get what the wicked should get and it doesn't make sense. He's expressing this tension, this crisis of faith between this is what I believe but this is what I see and how do I harmonize that? And when the church just gives platitudes for answers rather than real world responses, they're left with their disillusionment and walk away while we live in a form of wonderland. We have to wrestle with it. We have to be honest about it. He starts off first in verse 14 to say, is there no justice for the righteous? The righteous get what the wicked deserve. So we come back to that question, why do good, bad things happen to good people? even godly people. Why do bad people happen to good people? And how many, come on, help me this morning. How many of you would admit that you've seen things happen that don't make sense from your faith perspective? It doesn't make sense. That shouldn't happen to them. They shouldn't have to go through this. Wicked people should go through this. Not the godly people I know. I think it's much more common then we think, and our fear is, if we embrace the question, we're afraid what it will do to our platform of faith. So we hold on to a paradigm that doesn't work so that we don't have to deal with the realities that cause us pain. And I'm gonna try to challenge us 
to challenge that perspective. The Bible is really clear. Proverbs 21, 3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 um, talks to us about the idea of justice and peace, and we know that that is the will of God, and we know that that's what God wants for our lives, but we also know how difficult it is for us to address those things. There is a song that was written by a band uh, called A Perfect Circle, from 2000. I know that's 23 years ago, but it does capture something that I think we need to wrestle with. The lead singer's name was Maynard James Keenan. Does anybody even know that name? I'm curious. I'd never heard it before. One, two, three. What do we want to get for? Can I get four? The song describes the rage of the lead singer that his Christian mother would still hold her faith even after suffering a stroke and being paralyzed in a wheelchair. Maynard, who was not a Christian, screams in anger at his mother (coughs) with a profanity-laced lyrical analysis. He wrestles with the problem of evil, even telling his mother that she didn't deserve this. So why did God let this happen? And there is no escaping that bad things happen to good people. So let me ask you a couple questions. Who are the good people? Who are the good people? Maybe that's where we need to start. I think even in Christian circles... (laughs) I knew this would be tight this morning. I didn't expect it to be this tight. I think even in Christian circles, we have developed a false theology that believes that we deserve to be compensated for our goodness. That we deserve to be paid back when we do the right things. We deserve better because we are good. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we good? Oh, yes, pastor, I... I pay tithes, I come to church, I fast, I pray, I do all the right things. And Jesus spoke to a rich young ruler who said, all these things I've kept from my youth up. And he said, one thing you lack, because the reality is none of us are good. The Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Our goodness isn't earned, and therefore it can't demand payment. You can't be good on your own. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. And when we begin to identify ourselves and others by our good performance, we've moved away from a grace-based faith into a works-based faith, and that from there, believe that we can demand that God respond in a positive way to us. What do we deserve? If you understand grace, you understand that we did not impute righteousness to ourselves. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. You did not choose to become righteous. You were dead 
in trespasses and sins, separated far from God. And without the touch of God on your life, you're incapable of any kind of righteousness. You say, well, I know people that are basically good and they do good things, and that may be true, and by their fruit we'll know them, I get that. But a godly person doesn't become godly by righteous acts. They become godly by an encounter with the righteous God. You see, in reality, we deserve the same as the wicked. If you're going to talk about what we deserve, we deserve the same punishment that everyone else gets. There's no one among us that deserves the favor of God. There's no one among us that deserves his blessing and love and care. It's because before we loved him, he loved us. What we have received Thank God, isn't what we've earned, what we've received is not payment for our behavior. It is the grace of God. And it is the grace of God that brings salvation, that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You did not make yourself righteous. Therefore, you have no claim on benefit. He came from heaven, died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin and resurrected you from your spiritual deadness and gave you newness of life. It's not that Jesus came to make bad men good. Jesus came to make dead men live. And we need to recognize once again the glorious gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ that changes our lives. It's all about his gift. It's not about our performance. We live in a false paradigm that after we've walked with Jesus for a while, we think we have earned or deserve his favor. So is there no justice? Scripture is clear that there will be justice, that Christ will rule and reign. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it's the eternal view that rests on the belief that the God of all the earth will do right. And that's where we need to land. The God of all the earth will do right. One of the heroes of faith in my book is a man by the name of Charles Greenaway. Charles Greenaway went to Africa when missionaries packed their belongings in a coffin because they didn't expect to come back. It was called the white man's graveyard because we didn't have the inoculations that we have now or the protections that we have now. And there weren't immunities built up in the Americans' um, uh, um, immune system. And many of them would go there and die. And he's in the heart of Africa and reaching people, telling people about Jesus and his son. One of his sons gets sick and dies and he buries his son and how broken he was and angry he was. And you'd have to know Charles Greenaway, he didn't hold anything back when he talked to you. He'd put a right square in your face. And he is, he is mad and angry. And in a process of time, he wrote an article that was published in our publication that started this way. I will not go to hell over a mystery. I will not. Abraham approached God when God revealed to Abraham that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and everyone that was in there. And Abraham interceded in the behalf of that wicked city. 
And he said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And he goes from 50 to 40 down to 10. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And I have a declaration. Whatever the judge of the earth does, is the definition of what is right. The judge of the earth will do right. And we have a promise in Psalm 37 that the righteous will inherit the land and live in it forever. Is there no justice for the righteous? There will be someday. Those that have their faith in Jesus Christ were going to a place where everything will be righteous, where there is a new heaven and new earth, but that isn't this place. Well, what about, is there no justice for the wicked? Solomon wants the wicked to be judged. And he says earlier in chapter eight, verse 11, when sentenced for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of people are filled with schemes to do wrong, fully set in them to do evil. So he starts his whole diatribe in verse 11 that the wicked ought to be punished. And I will tell you, I'm on that page. I don't like it when people get away with doing wrong things. I'm not nearly as concerned when I get away with doing wrong things. But I don't want the wicked to get away with it. Isn't that what we all want? In Micah 6.8, we're called to do justly. In Isaiah 56, 1, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. In Isaiah 59, 14, so justice is driven back, righteousness stands at a distance. There is something in the heart of God that wants us to stand for justice, and I'm not talking now about the political processes, nor will I today answer all of the questions. But Solomon asked first, why do the righteous get what the wicked deserve? And we've got to understand, we don't deserve anything except the grace of God. Well, then why don't the wicked get what they they deserve why do they get favor the wicked will one day get what they deserve the wicked who are the wicked those that have rejected the provision of Jesus Christ will be turned into hell. We don't talk about it very much, and if I'm gonna be totally transparent with you about the concept of hell, I can't get my brain wrapped around it. I, I, it's, it's too horrific for me to get my brain wrapped around it because the Bible teaches that there is a place of eternal torment where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, that forever and ever and ever, there are souls that will be tormented in hell for the rejection of the provision of Jesus Christ. You know that he said more about hell than he ever said about heaven and as a warning to us. And so I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I don't have to. I don't write the rules. I just know that it's true. And there is a day coming when the wicked dead will stand before God and they will pay the penalty for their sins and spend forever in a devil's hell. So do not think for a moment that the wicked are getting by or they won't be held accountable. They they will. I've told the story, it marked me 
as a high school student. I was 16, and a godly man that I respected uh, greatly. Uh, one of our board members and had poured into my life, I'd worked for him, disappeared. We were in a revival meeting with Benny Ferguson when that happened and they had gone. Benny had flown back for a youth rally and Donnie had gone with him. And when they came back, Donnie disappeared. We had an all-night prayer meeting. I was part of that all-night prayer meeting. Where is Donnie? Couldn't find him. He was an auctioneer who dealt in cash with all of his purchases and always carried a large wad of cash with him because people respond better to green than they do your floral check. And he's buying things, and I had worked for him, watched it happen, and he had on his appointment book a man who was selling some guns. And as they researched that, they found two sets of tire tracks that pulled up to a little cabin on the Cedar River. Two sets of footprints went into the cabin. Two sets of footprints went down to the river. One set of footprints came back, and one vehicle drove away. There's somewhere in the Cedar River, Donnie's body was floating, but you can't prosecute for a murder if you can't find him. And scuba divers had searched the river trying to find the body, and one of the men in the church had a dream of where the body was. Now imagine this, took a tine of a pitchfork, bent it into a hook with a rope, and went up and down that river where they couldn't find his body, I believe it was in February, threw it into the water, and after a period of time, hooked the body under its arm and pulled it to the shore because God is a God of justice. Went to trial and there were all kinds of evidence against him but they couldn't find the murder weapon and by the time the trial was over, on a technicality, the man is found not guilty and released. Why do you think he was guilty? Because after the trial was over, this man walked up to Donnie's wife in a Walmart and laughed at her in her face and walked away. Would it surprise you that she bought a gun? Would it surprise you that she sat on the banks of the Cedar River and did target practice? And if I were to tell you the truth, how I felt in my heart at that time, I'd have been glad to have taken a rifle and shot him. Donnie was shot three times in the back and left to die and the money taken away. You say, that's not fair, that's not just. No, but when human courts fail, that man will someday stand before God. He will get the judgment that is due him. We have to take a longer view of life and understand that this world isn't all there is. There is an eternal destination that is an incredible dichotomy of, of, of consequence. One where everything is beautiful and good and the other that is horrible and torment. And I don't know how you are, but I don't want to see anybody go to hell. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is not willing that any perish but that all come to repentance. So think with me for a moment and please understand this biblical construct. I do not believe that God is concerned that every transaction on earth be adjudicated. What he's concerned with is that every person on the planet has an opportunity to go to heaven. God, listen to me, is not willing that any should perish. 
And the Bible tells us in Romans that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And when you see the wicked getting what the righteous deserve or being blessed when they don't deserve to be blessed, you have to understand that God has a bigger plan. And his plan isn't evening, evening out the books here. His plan is that somebody's going to heaven and somebody's going to hell. And he's not willing that anybody go to hell. And he's going to do everything that is divinely possible to reach that person and let them see the goodness of God that beckons them and calls them and God help us to not not become so bitter about what's happening in the world around us that we wish people into hell. Hello? Do you show contempt for the riches and kindness, tolerance and patience of God? Talking to the Jews and to the church today, do you show contempt for the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads to repentance? You see, we have to see a bigger picture. When we say, why do the righteous get what the wicked deserve? We've taken an identity on us that we don't own And when we say, why do the wicked get what the righteous deserve? We end up in a place of not recognizing that God has a bigger plan. How many are with me? We have to see it in a new light. So then the question is, how do we survive in an unjust world? How do we survive? And I believe that the end of of Ecclesiastes 8 tells us how to do that. man by the name of Robert Johnston wrote this commentary about Ecclesiastes The teacher, Solomon, understanding of God, therefore, reveals a paradox. God is present yet absent. He gives meaning to life. He gives meaning to life yet is incomprehensible. He makes both the beautiful and the burdensome. We too sometimes cry out for God's presence given his absence, given external circumstances that cause us to question life. We can either harden our hearts or look for faint moments of grace. The teacher chooses the latter. He finds God's footprint to be present even in the darkest moments. Neither death nor life, amorality nor life's ongoing mystery can cancel out his belief in God's sustaining presence that in fact somehow compel it. What's he saying? Just because you don't see him means he isn't there. Just because he isn't visible doesn't mean he's gone. Just because he doesn't respond, it doesn't mean he's given his approval. There's a bigger picture. There's a divine plan. There's a mystic stage of God's plan for the ages that we have to focus our attention on. So how do we get through this dilemma? Well, here's what he says first in verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life God has given him under the sun. Now, I know that's used in a negative light, particularly the man who built bigger barns to encapsulate all of his, all of his harvest when he says, look at my barns, I'll big bigger barns. And then he said, eat, drink, and be merry. And I know that can be a pagan fleshly response but on the other side do you know that God wants you to enjoy your life he says I commend to you the enjoyment of life 
John says, I write these things to you that your joy might be full. So here's what I would say to you. Number one, if you're going to survive in this world, you need to live in such a way that we learn to live with joy. We've got to learn to live with joy in a world that isn't always joyful. So hear me this morning. I'm not trying to be offensive or confrontational, but don't judge what isn't yours to judge. Don't judge what isn't yours to judge. You are not the judge of all the earth. You are not the one who's going to make everything right. And we have to live in a place where we trust that the judge of all the earth will bring things together. So what do we do? You need to seek the place of joy in your own life. That's all you really have to worry about. And I can be empathetic and I can carry the load of others and I can be, I can, I can care for you and pray for you, but I can't let, listen to me, I can't let Tim Thomas's struggle destroy my joy. I can't let the weight of the world, I can care, I can be empathetic, I need to be compassionate, I can help carry the load. But God will not, listen to me, will not give me grace to carry Pastor Tim's load. He will give me grace to carry my load. I can't solve all the world's problems. And you know what? Not once I've ever asked, have I ever had God speak to me and say, Gary Pilcher, what do you think I should do? That has never happened. That has never happened. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah, in that day when the building of the wall was complete, they were done with the building of the wall, but the restoration of worship hadn't yet taken place, and the people are broken, the walls are up, but they've not restored their worship to God, and they call for a sacred assembly, and Nehemiah says, this is not a day for mourning. This is not a day for repenting. This is a day for celebration, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if the devil can get your eyes and all the brokenness around you, he can steal away the joy that the Spirit of God wants to put within you. And the only way we're going to make it is to build our lives on a platform of joy that I'm not going to let all the brokenness of this world steal the abundance of joy that God has available for us. What I can control is what happens in my life. How do we get through it? Build on joy. Build on joy. Don't fill your mind with everything that's wrong. And our world beats us all the time, particularly if you're on social media. I love the picture, and I'll probably use it somewhere sometime. Someone put a picture on social media about their trip. They were flying to, the, they were flying to some island somewhere. And you see the rim of the airplane window, and you see the beautiful skies. And they said, we're about to land in Bermuda. And then you see the reality. They had taken a white toilet seat, put it in a window, and took a picture up through the toilet seat in such a way that it looked like the window of the plane, and they were in their bathroom. <laughs> this world lies. It's filled with things that aren't true. You can't assume that what someone tells you is accurate and you can't carry all the weight of the world. You can't even carry the weight of tomorrow because the Bible says that 
take no thought for the morrow, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And you're not in a healthy place if you can't live in a place of joy. Narrow your responsibility. Narrow your authority. You are not the God of the universe. You're not even the God of the earth. You're not even the God of Iowa. You're not even the God of Pleasant Hill. You're not even the God of Avon or Swan or any of those little communities. There's only one God and wants you to live in joy. Learn to take pleasure in eating, drinking, and working. Learn. God wants you to have joy. You can have joy in an Idi Amin, Uganda regime that's destroying lives. You can have it anywhere on the planet because it is a supernatural gift. Are you hearing me this morning? How are we going to make it with the problem of evil? We can't let the problem of evil in this world steal our joy from us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul said. And again, I say rejoice. Second, you need to seek to find wisdom. In verse 16, then I applied my mind to know wisdom, to observe man's labor on earth, his eye not seeing sleep, his eyes not seeing sleep by day or by night. So you begin to look at that. And he's saying, I'm looking at all of these people that are working so hard and they can't get any sleep, working all day and not sleeping at night. And applied my mind to wisdom. What will give you peace is to begin to learn the wisdom of God. And how many of you know what the beginning of wisdom is? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So while you're building your life on joy and you're going to maintain that relationship with God, then pursue the wisdom of God. Spend time in his word. Spend time pursuing his revelation. Spend time understanding what God has said, going deeper in his revelation to mankind because that's where our answer will be. He sees a world that is out of balance. He sees a world that is striving by human effort and has missed all of that. So while you are seeking to live in joy, make sure you're living a life that is structured to find wisdom and you won't find it on the news. You won't find it in the papers. We're bombarded with media telling us how bad everything is all the time. Walter Cronkite and the five o'clock news is gone and instead we've got pundits and prognosticators that are running off at the mouth 24 hours a day and rather than filling your mind with what the wisdom of the world is, you will never survive in this world world with evil until you fill your mind with what God has said. Live with joy and seek his wisdom. And the last thing that he says in verse 18, (laughs) we just need to accept the uncertainty of life. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discern its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he really uh, cannot comprehend it. We cannot know or really comprehend the mind of God, all that God is doing and all that God is about. So you're going to build your life on joy. You're going to seek the wisdom of God and you're going to accept your own limitations. You don't have to know everything. Hello? You don't have to know everything. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, the end of the second giving of the law, 
These are the terms of the covenant. First verse of 29. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he made with them in Horeb. So here's what God said. And 29 goes on with the blessing of God and the new covenant repeated again and everything being told to them. And after he goes through all of this that God expects of his people and the rewards and blessing that are coming. Do you know how that book ends? That chapter ends in verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. He will give you everything you need to know, but some things belong to him. And you've got to accept that. No, I don't want to. I want an answer. I want to know why. I'll tell you what I've learned over time. God rarely will answer your why questions before he answers your what questions. He will explain to you what to do before he explain any of the why you should do it. What does that mean? It means that obedience doesn't rest on your ability to understand. Your ability to understand will rest on the foundation of your obedience. When you obey, understanding will come. But if you're expecting understanding to come so you're equipped to obey, that will never happen because God will not put his revelation on a smorgasbord so you can decide to have the chicken wings over the ham. It will be out there. This is the revelation, but you will not be in a place to receive it until you obey him first. What do you want me to do is more important than why did you do this? There are times we have to just admit, I don't know. You know what I think the church needs to come to? Pastor Tim, you know what I think we need to come to? I think we need to quit worrying about having all the right answers and be willing to say, I don't know. Why did grandma have to die like that? I don't know. Why did my child die in that manner? I don't know. Why was my house broken into? Why did my house burn down? Why, was my, why were my parents in that car accident? Why, why, why? And I think sometimes we have to say, I don't know. I don't know why. But I know this, we can live in joy. And he wants to heal you and live in joy in spite of your circumstances. I know this, you can seek the wisdom of God and over time you'll begin to understand his ways. And I know this, some things belong to him and we'll understand it by and by. I want to end this way. I've said this many times, but I want to say it again. Please don't respond. Don't raise your hand. Just stay exactly the way you are. But I hear, and I've said it, when I get to heaven, the first question I'm going to ask Jesus is this. <laughs> oh, ye of little brains. No. When I step through that gate onto those streets and I see the eternal heavenly Father and my Savior on his right hand and caught up in all the splendor. I don't think any of my earth-bound questions are going to matter 
and an eternal revelation of God. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. So I'm saying to you, I don't know why things happen. I don't know. But I'm not going to let the brokenness of this world steal my joy. I'm going to continue to pursue the wisdom of God because I have more to learn. And I'm going to understand that some things belong to him. They don't belong to you. How many parents know that sometimes a question, a child asks a question that they're in no way equipped to get the answer? You know that's true. We're the child demanding the parent give us answers that only he knows if we're equipped to receive. At that point, you have to trust. What do we do with the problem of injustice? We don't let it destroy our hearts and lives. So I'm going to ask you this morning to recommit to saying, I don't know. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to do a funeral on Wednesday for a man that loved God and poured into people and helped build a church and was pouring his life into people and trying his best at that stage of his life to do the right things. He goes in for a simple um, surgery on his carotid artery that shouldn't have been a big deal and then has a series of strokes and I never had the chance to say goodbye to him. How fair is that? I don't know. I don't know why it happened. But I'll tell you what I do know. Today, in heaven, he's not asking to come back. Someday, I want to make it. I want to make it. Would you stand with me? And let's take some time to worship the Lord together.
brings our chaos back into order. Who makes the orphan a son and daughter, the King of glory, the King of glory, who rules this nation with truth and justice, shines like the this morning. that's not a very satisfying answer for someone in trouble it's better than your fake made up one <laughs> I can't tell you why but I can tell you there is someone who will walk alongside you and put his arm around you and love you through your tragedy I can give you stories out of tragedy where God brought new life and health to people's lives. You can't control what happens in the world, but you can decorate where you live. You can have joy. You can seek wisdom. And you can trust him with what you don't understand. And that's how you survive the injustice in the world joy, wisdom, and trust will get you through. Father, help us to trust you in the storms. Help us have confidence in you in our times of trial. And give us insight into your love and grace that we can extend it to a broken world. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves them said, amen. If you love him this morning, let me hear your hands. What a great God we serve. What a great, great God we serve. Amen. God bless you and be willing to admit you don't know everything.